Well, good morning again, OCEC, and uh, welcome back. Um, hasn't been that long since we last saw each other. Uh, if you happen to catch the midweek service that we put out, um, hopefully uh, that was valuable and helpful for you guys and encouraging. Um, we're kind of thrown off in our schedule in this last week and what we've had available and when, and you know, we apologize for that, but we're back together. It's Sunday, and I think this is how we're going to do it moving forward. We're going to stick with Sunday. Sunday's a good day. Um, so this week, uh, we're looking at, as Matt just read, uh, the second really, the second evangelism story in the life of this guy, Philip. And it's a pretty incredible story, both of them. The one we looked at in the middle of the week with Simon the Magician and, uh, and this one with the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, pretty interesting interactions. And um, both involve this guy, Philip. But in order to understand what's happening here, and this happens throughout our, our study in Acts, we have to kind of, st- we, have, we have to kind of pause, we have to stop, and we have to just look a little bit at some of the history that's playing into all of this stuff and sort of see why some of these, uh, well, some of the things that are happening in the early church, why they mean quite so much. Because to us, they only mean so much. But in the early church, they meant a lot more. So we've talked a lot about how um, in the days of sort of ancient Israel, you know, before the New Testament, um, back when they were this sort of kingdom, they were, they were two kingdoms um, towards the end there. They were, uh, they were a divided kingdom. There was the north uh, kingdom and the southern kingdom. And, um, and what happened was eventually both of them were sort of captured or, you know, conquered and, and stuff. And, and, and all of that had long taken place since the days that Jesus would come. But what happened was the, uh, the northern kingdom, um, as it was uh, conquered, it was conquered by the Assyrians. And what the Assyrians did when they conquered a place was they filled it up with their own people. They, they were like, we are just going to like, oh, sweet, we've got some new land now. Let's fill it up. We got people to spare. So they would just, they would move all bunch of their people in and then their people would like make it their own home. And then all the people that lived there just kind of had to deal with it and they had to be like subject to those people. So what would happen was, um, you know, you had all these Jewish people uh, living in uh, the Northern Kingdom and the capital of the Northern Kingdom was Samaria. So when you hear about Samaria in the Bible, Samaria kind of represents that whole, that whole northern kingdom group. And, uh, and so in Samaria, or in that area, the Assyrians move in, and what happens, if you remember from weeks back, the biggest, most important charge that was given to the Israelites was just don't let yourselves become like everyone else, right? Don't let yourselves get defiled. Don't let yourselves get corrupted. You know, stay distinct. You think about that word distinct. Let that word stick in your mind because that's a word that really describes uh, the Jewish people. That was like their highest value of all. We have got to be different. We're going to try to keep speaking our language. We're going to try to keep doing all these things that we do for our religion and our way of life. And no matter, no matter what happens in life or how much it changes, we're going to try to stay distinct from all the other stuff going on around us. They're kind of like the, it's kind of like the Amish people, you know, how, how like the Amish are known in America as like that group that they're not gonna embrace technology, any of that other new stuff, and, uh, and they're gonna be different. That's sort of how the Jewish people were known. 
And people kind of admired him for that reason. They, they, they liked the fact that the Jewish people, a lot, a lot of people were drawn to the fact that they believed in only one God. Because believe it or not, it's kind of exhausting to believe in lots and lots of different gods who do all kinds of different things and fight against each other and are totally unpredictable and you never know what they're going to think or do or whatever. People really like the fact, a lot of people, that the Jews worship one God. That's pretty simple. That's pretty easy to keep track of, right? Well, they also like the fact that they, they were pretty moral people. They, 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 they have this sort of like honorable way of living. You know, they, they, their one God believed uh, in his people being a certain way, being holy. And it, it, which is really pretty incredible because that's what God tells the Israelites in the beginning, right? He says, he says that there's one thing that I've created you, my kingdom, my people for, it's so that you could show everybody that, that, that you're distinct because I'm distinct, right? So what happens is the Assyrians come in, they conquer the northern kingdom, they move in a bunch of their people, and basically the northern kingdom doesn't do the best job of staying distinct. They kind of they let the people change them. Well, the southern kingdom, years later, eventually gets conquered. And uh, they get conquered by the Babylonians. Now what the Babylonians do is different. Instead of moving people in, they move people out. They, they take as many of the Jewish people as they can, they move them out into other parts of their empire. Now these people leave and they go, we are committed to not change. We're going to stay distinct, right? Well, then eventually you read about in the Old Testament, Ezra and Nehemiah, what happens is one person goes to the king eventually and says, would you let me go back to Jerusalem with a bunch of my people, the Jews? Would you let us rebuild the temple? And the king lets him do it. So they go back to Jerusalem and they rebuild the temple eventually. And what you have in Jerusalem now, when the church begins, when the early church begins, what you have in Jerusalem is you have the hub of like the Jewish faith in Jerusalem. The temple's been rebuilt, and these people are the, 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 the real, genuine, you know, Hebrew-speaking Jews. The idea is they're the real deal, right? They're the ones that were, that were, uh, that, that stayed distinct and were never defiled, were never corrupted, anything like that. There's a lot of tension between these two groups, believe it or not. Uh, this has actually happened throughout the history of the church. In fact, um, throughout the history of the church, there have been times where persecution has come. And some people give in and some people don't. And some people are killed and other people get away because they say, oh, no, I'm not a Christian. I denounce my faith or whatever. But then there are these times in the history of the church where the people end up having to come back together. And, and they have to go, okay, so what are we going to do with these guys who totally like, you know, gave up their faith, did the denying Jesus thing, and now they're alive. But then our other leaders that we love and respect, they got killed because they stood up for Jesus. What do we do with these guys now? They want to come back in the church. Do we let them in? Do we, you know, just love them and embrace them? What do we do? This was a real problem in the church because they were like, I don't know. I mean, how much does God care about purity versus, you know, love and forgiving people and, you know, everybody being together and all that stuff? This is kind of a big deal in the church. Well, what happens in Acts here is... We have these apostles that Jesus empowers, you know, he says, he, say, he raises them up, the disciples, and, and they get anointed with the Holy Spirit, and they become empowered to start the church. And, and, what, and what, if you remember what Jesus says to them in the Great Commission is, go therefore, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and he says to go to the ends of the earth, right? Uh, now, the ends of the earth, in ancient times, there was a country 
and this country was known by the Greeks and other ancient cultures, Babylonians and such, they referred to this country as the end of the earth. Ethiopia. See, see how, we're, how we're coming full circle here? So uh, you had uh, the, the Sumerians, which is kind of like northern part of the northern kingdom, right? So, and then you have Ethiopia, which is south of there, and people kind of considered it the edge of the world. They really did. They considered it like the edge of the map. I hope you're tracking with me. Like, seriously, uh, if I was in front of a group right now, I'd be able to tell if you guys are all falling asleep. But if you're like nodding off and you're going, where's this going? I don't know. Hit the pause button. Go out, run a few laps or something. Throw some water on your face. Come back, sit down. Pretend like I just told a hilarious joke. You can watch a YouTube video. I don't care. Uh, you can do that. You can come back because I've still got more. That's right, I've got more, because there is a lot of history behind this stuff and it's helpful to know about it, believe me, it really is. So, what happens is this. Remember those seven guys that got um, appointed to wait tables, to feed widows, to feed hungry, homeless people on Sunday mornings, basically? They got, they, we, it's people sometimes, you know, like they, they refer to that as you know, the first deacons of the church. These guys just, they're not given a job that you consider to be that big of a deal. And the, but the apostles pray for them. They, they lay, lay hands on them, give them the spirit. And, and then we find out that it actually is a pretty big deal, the job these guys get. Because here's what happens. Stephen starts to preach. And there's a ton of persecution about Stephen. He makes everybody really mad. And so then the church uh, begins to really get persecuted after Stephen is killed. So what happens is Stephen gets killed, he gets stoned to death, and there's this guy named Saul, and Saul, we're going to start learning about next week, uh, spoiler alert, he has a lot in common with someone named Paul, but I'm not going to ruin it for Pastor Matt. So Saul is one of the people uh, throwing rocks at him, uh, killing him uh, for, you know, being a heretic and starting a cult, basically. Well, then the church gets blown up, and the apostles stay in Jerusalem, uh, a lot of the Jerusalem people do, but then everyone else leaves again. Well, now we have these guys, these guys being sent out who have been chosen by the apostles and they're now gonna go out to the ends of the earth. They're gonna go out beyond Jerusalem and they're gonna tell people about Jesus. Philip is the first one of those and he goes to Samaria like we talked about this week. Goes to Samaria and he incredible things are done and he and, and and he tells people about Jesus and the gospel and they're changed and it's amazing right. So now we read about uh, about uh, an angel of the Lord. It says comes to Philip and tells him, "I want you to go along and on this road, I want you to go and find this guy. He's an Ethiopian eunuch, and I want you to I want you to talk to this guy. I want you to help him." So Philip does it. Now, Philip is, is an incredible evangelist. Uh, this passage is all about evangelism. In fact, in a, in a day when I think if we, if we had to admit it, we would say that we really, really uh, are intimidated by evangelism and uh, the idea of, of, of us as individuals actually having to go talk to other people about Jesus is pretty terrifying. Uh, what sounds a lot more appealing is these great speakers, these great knowledgeable people who have the spirit 
going out and talking in public and talking in the, in the, in the temples and, and, and debating with people and thousands of people coming to faith. We like that. That sounds good, right? Because that's, that doesn't really involve me having to have awkward conversations with magicians and Ethiopian eunuchs and stuff like that. But then you have a change. Uh, you have a change that even at this time, when there are these amazing, skilled, called, gifted, passionate, spirit-filled uh, preachers and teachers and, and, and miracle workers, that we still see guys like Philip. And what does Philip do? Philip, who's an amazing preacher, an amazing teacher, an amazing, like uh, you can tell, healer, what does he do? He still is like seeking out these people and just talking to them about Jesus, just telling them about Jesus. Not in a big crowd, but just them. We read about in the beginning of this passage how this all starts. In verse 26, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert place. So it says he rose and he went and there's an Ethiopian eunuch court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning. And it said he was reading from the prophet Isaiah. So Ethiopia was a very wealthy nation. It was considered, like I said, a very exotic place, the ends of the earth. The king of Ethiopia was almost like a god. And so the queen, he was too busy being a god to really do anything. So the queen was the one who ran everything. So the queen of Ethiopia was the, the big deal. And really all of her servants or most of her servants are called eunuchs. So, you know, I wasn't going to, I'm not going to get into this anyway. I, I've just decided, you know, there's too much in this passage. And I don't think we really need to talk much about eunuchs. We're going to spend a lot of time on circumcision down the road. And there's only so much in that general category that I can handle. So we'll just say this. Um, a, a eunuch doesn't necessarily literally even mean what we think of as a eunuch, uh, whatever you're thinking of. Um, a eunuch is just a person who's in the queen's court, who's one of her high, high servants, high officials. This guy's the treasurer, which means he has access to a lot of money. So it says that this Ethiopian eunuch went to Jerusalem and he went to, uh, to worship at the temple. So what that means is he's, they call him a God-fearer, a God-fearer, a God-fearing Jew. It means he's, a, he's not a naturally a Jewish person, he's not a Hebrew, but he believes in the God of the Israelites. He believes in the God of the Jews, right? Like I said, a lot of people at this time really were attracted to the idea of just one God. They're like, this is way more doable for me. They also really saw a lot of, of truth in the integrity in the way that the Jewish people lived. And so this man is yet another example of somebody who just, like from another country, from another place, just saw, the, the, saw God, saw the truth, really, in the Jewish faith, and said, I want, I want to be a part of that. And because he was educated, he was able to read for himself, and, so he, and he had resources, so he traveled uh, to the temple, and, and on his way back, uh, Philip stops and talks with him. And as he talks with him, the, he, he, helps, he helps this Ethiopian eunuch um, interpret uh, these words. He, 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 asks, uh, he, asks, he asks Philip, he says, or Philip asks him, he says, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me 
So he invites Philip up and he explains to him. He's reading out of Isaiah and what he's reading is a prophecy that really speaks to Jesus. And what, what Philip does is very simple. He basically points him back to Jesus. He says, let me, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about why this is in Isaiah and who this is ultimately speaking to and that God has brought me to you to give, to, to give you the truth, to give you uh, uh, the answer that you need in order to be a part of his kingdom. And this guy doesn't hesitate at all. He wants to get baptized. Philip baptizes him. Then the spirit of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, takes him away. It's like a crazy story, right? It's a crazy story. You know, when you think about what these guys are called to do in, in, in Acts, it, it's just crazy. It's, it's insane. I mean, I, I, the more you read Acts, honestly, the more I read Acts, the more intimidated I get, if anything. The more I think, I think there's no way that like, I mean, okay, that was a big deal. Now this is a big deal. Now this is an incredible big thing. And I think to myself, like if, if this is what the church is supposed to be, if this is in any way at all how we're supposed to be, I mean, how in the world, right? Like, how in the world would we see these kinds of things happen? Because what, what happens is Jesus ultimately says to his disciples in the beginning of all this, he says, he says you're going to go and you're going to build and lead this church and the Holy Spirit's going to be given to you and give you everything you need. I don't know if you've ever been, I don't know if you've ever been um, given a job, something to do that is just so... Uh, so far outside of your, of your abilities, of your skills. You just find yourself thrown in it. I mean, everybody who's a parent would probably say that is a good example. It's the best example I can think of. I, I remember vividly, uh, many people remember vividly, like, you know, the day, you know, the, the, the day coming home from the hospital going, I can't believe they're just going to let me go home with this baby. Like, I have no idea what I'm doing, right? For our, our first child, for Tegan, he, uh, he was... Uh, 15 months old when we brought him home from Ethiopia. So we, we brought him home, and I remember going to bed that night. I remember going to, going to bed at the end of the first 24 hours, I should say, that we had him home because we were up all 24 hours. It was a nightmare. But I remember going to bed, totally exhausted. He was asleep, finally going to bed. Daylight is still out, but it was like, you know, it was like 6.30 at night, and I'm going to sleep. I'm so exhausted. So I remember just thinking to myself, I can't do this. Like, this is, this is insane. Like, there is no way that I'm going to be able to, like, take care of this kid. I, I have, there's no way. Like, I, I, I can barely take care of myself. Um, I can't take care of Ellie. We've just spent, like, so far in our marriage determining I definitely can't take care of her. Uh, you know, uh, she can, God can, but I'm not going to know. I'm not going to know how to do that. I can barely take care of myself. We had given a dog back at that point. We had had like two cats die. Uh, we, we, we were like a total mess. Right. And, um, I, I have this child and I remember thinking to myself, like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I, I have no way to do this. Now, the nice thing was about a week in, Ellie's mom came. And, you know, a lot of you have this experience. The, the mother or the, your mother-in-law comes. And, and you're like, okay, a little bit of relief, right? A little bit of relief. I can take a shower, right? I can go, I can sleep or something, right? Because it's just, it's nonstop until somebody comes and gives you some kind of a break. And her mom came, and, and, and I remember thinking when her mom was there, like, this would be so much harder if, if 
um, if there was actually somebody here taking care of him and they were just saying to us, okay, so I know you're not ready yet, but whenever you're ready, just let me know and I'll just kind of, I'll step aside and you can take care, right? I mean, Tegan lived in a group home before he came to us, so he, or in a transition home, so he had, he had nannies and he, there was a doctor on site. He had a, they had a cook there. I mean, they, it was like, he was pretty well taken care of. I remember thinking like, those ladies know way more about how to take care of him than I do. I remember making him food and he just wouldn't eat it. Making him food and he just wouldn't eat it. Had no idea, right, what to do with any of it. I just imagine myself, if I, if I had like a team of those people, a team of people here, like taking care of him, uh, these, these nannies and a doctor and a cook, and, and they were like, um, we're here, we'll take care of it, and as soon as you feel like you're ready, we'll just step back and we'll let you be a good dad, right? Whenever you feel like you're ready, just let us know. Let us know when you're good and ready and you think you can, you think you can handle it, you think you can do it. I mean, there's no way that would ever have happened. It, it would have been like, it would have been like uh, two years later, hey, where are you going? Oh, I'm going to see um, a, a Marvel movie marathon that's like 24 hours long in a theater. See, a, uh, you don't think you're ready yet? You don't think if you're going to go spend that much time in a movie theater, you think you can do the kid thing? No, I don't think I'm quite ready enough. I don't think I've done quite enough. You guys definitely are doing great. You're taking care of it. No, no worries here. I mean, that's probably how it would have gotten because honestly, the thing is like, and this again is so true in, in, in parenting is, you're so overwhelmed, you're so ill-equipped, you have no, like, I cannot do this, how am I gonna do it? But then you just do it, you have to do it, because there is no one else. There's nobody who's gonna come and just take over for you. I mean, this is what the apostles, the disciples, these, these Hellenists who were, who were anointed and, and, and sent out in the same way, this is what they all must have felt like in a sense. You have this, this huge task of, of preaching the word, leading the church, and, 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 and they just have to go like, how could I possibly do this? How could I be equipped enough to do this? You definitely get that sense with the apostles at the beginning of Acts. I mean, we're at the point now where it's been, it's been years. It's been a couple of years probably. So Jesus came into Jerusalem on a donkey for the Passover, celebrated Passover. Jesus died. And then a month later, Pentecost, uh, that's when the Holy Spirit, tongues of fire, thousands of people. And then for months, the church grows. For a while, the church grows. And then as persecution happens, they all get kicked out. And now we're kind of in that, in that period. And but regardless of all the different individual variables of each one of these things that happens, the Holy Spirit is the one who is, who is equipping these guys. And the last thing the Holy Spirit does is the Holy Spirit um, really brings clarity, clarifies what's going on for these guys. I mean, you, you, what I mean by that is this, uh, what, what Philip does for the Ethiopian is simple. He makes sense out of the Bible for him, right? And what does he do? He shows him how it points to Jesus. He shows him how what he's reading points to who Jesus is. I mean, that's ultimately what evangelism is. Evangelism is us pointing people to Jesus, to Christ, and that's exactly what he does. He doesn't give him a big, long, like, elaborate explanation of all the prophets and everything. He, he, he doesn't talk to him about the law. He doesn't talk to him about all the obedience that he, has to, that he has to keep, all the rules he has to keep. He says, this passage in Isaiah points to Jesus, so let me tell you about Jesus. And, and the Ethiopian 
uh, uh, responds and he believes and he wants to get baptized. My son, um, my son Tegan, he, um, one of these days I'm gonna start talking about my daughter, but for now I'll talk about Tegan. Tegan, um, for some reason, likes to watch subtitles. Um, he, I, I started to notice this about a year ago. The subtitles were always on on our TV, and I wasn't totally sure what the deal was. Um, and then I, I asked him, and, and oh, because I kept turning them off, and then they kept turning back on, on everything. And, and he was like, yeah, I like the subtitles. I like to read the words. And I'm like, what do you, what, what? And he's like, yeah, I just, I like to see what the words are, what they're saying. I'm like, okay, that's, that's weird, but okay. And then he, um, what I started to notice a couple of months ago was he was getting closer and closer and closer to our TV in our living room when he would watch TV. And eventually, he now lays, we have a fireplace, our fireplace is right under our TV. Um, I should, it sounds fancier if I say, our TV's right over our fireplace. Yeah, that sounds nicer. Um, he lays right in front of the fireplace and he puts his feet up on the glass of the fireplace and he just stares straight up at the TV. I mean, he's like staring straight up at the thing. And I'm like, what are you doing? And he's like, I, oh, I just, I like to sit here. I like to sit here. I'm like, what are you doing? I like to sit here. I like to sit here. And finally, like a month ago, we got him to tell us like he can't see the words that he's trying to read. He can't see them on the TV. We're like, oh no. So we take him to get his eyes checked. And sure enough, they said, Tegan needs glasses. Now, this is hilarious to me because Tegan and his best friend Isaiah, they have been, they like, they pretty openly like mock people with glasses, specifically me and Isaiah's dad. Tegan says, oh, oh, we, we you got people with glasses are nerds. People with glasses are nerds. And, and I'm like, I have glasses. And he's like, I know, you're a nerd. And I'm like, but his dad has glasses. And he's like, I know, we know, he's a nerd. We don't, we don't make the rules, okay? We don't make the rules. We just, we enforce them and we communicate them and we make sure they don't change, right? People with glasses are nerds, sorry. So then Tegan finds out he's getting glasses. And I'm like, well, Tegan, guess what? You're a huge nerd. And I mean, to be fair, he reads subtitles on TV. So that's a pretty nerdy thing to do. But he got his glasses this week and it's like his whole life has changed because now he can see. And it was the weirdest thing because he was like, he was like, I just couldn't, I couldn't see, you know, before that far. It, I used to think, he used to think that everything beyond a certain point was just supposed to be blurry. I remember one time I was sitting at a coffee shop with somebody and he had his glasses on the table and I, 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 and I took them and I put them on and I could see better and I was like, what? And it turned out I needed glasses. I used to think that everything really tiny was like, I used to think, I don't know, print that was, the, the, it, I thought print was tinier than it really was or something. And then I got glasses and I could see something that I didn't see before. I mean, this is, this is like exactly what the Holy Spirit does for us. Like the Holy Spirit takes something that just doesn't always make so much sense and, and clarifies it for us. I mean, you know how many people open up the Bible, try to understand the Bible and just don't get it um, and need help in understanding what it is that it says? It's not because it's so complicated. There's all kinds of reasons why. I mean, one of the biggest reasons why we don't get things in the Bible is because we're predisposed to dislike them or to not want to, want to understand them. Uh, uh, people in, in, in certain parts of the world have a very difficult time comprehending and accepting the idea of a forgiving God because they've been in war-torn countries where people do horrible things to each other, and they have a very hard time believing that a just God could ever forgive anyone, because to them, the idea of God's wrath and his vengeance is everything. Whereas in our world that we live in, we, uh, in our culture, we have a very hard idea, we have a very hard, like, 
understanding, a very hard time understanding or grasping the idea of, of, of a just God, a God who would actually care about right or wrong and actually punish someone, a God who is God of wrath, right? Uh, because we just believe that we should all be, you know, forgiven and none of that stuff matters, I guess. We're predisposed to certain things and, and because we are, it's hard for us to actually understand what's in the Bible sometimes because our heart doesn't want it. We can be hard-hearted or callous to that thing. And what the Holy Spirit does, the Holy Spirit makes sense out of that for us. It clarifies for us. It's like putting on those glasses and for the first time going, now I get it. Now, uh, one of the ways this can be really important is if someone isn't a believer, then a lot of times you don't have the motivation to understand. I mean, I, I teach believers, we teach believers in the church all the time uh, that, that if you really do like care about understanding the Bible, you can understand the Bible. It's not that hard to understand, but you have to care. I mean, you have to actually you know, want to do it. I mean, uh, at a certain point, I'll be honest, guys, like I, don't, I shouldn't have to explain a parable to you because Jesus told parables so that the people who wanted to know them would know them and the people that wouldn't would be like, no, 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 you know, whatever, I'm moving on. That's why he did that. He actually wanted people to like care about it. The Holy Spirit, it guides, the Holy Spirit, he equips and he clarifies things for us. We have the ability, we have the, the potential, the ability, the power to have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. There's this uh, confusing thing where the Holy Spirit seems to be given to people with the laying on of hands in the New Testament. We see it in Acts here, and it can be really confusing because the big question we have is, so does everyone get the Holy Spirit when they become a Christian, or does the Holy, Christ, does the Holy Spirit come when you lay hands on somebody, when the, when the apostles laid hands on someone? Is it like a second thing that you get? Because if so, then what about all the people who don't have the Holy Spirit, right? Well, what we're seeing happen in Acts, most likely, is that situations where the apostles show up and they lay hands on people and the Holy Spirit is, is like manifested in them, what, what scholars think that that most likely is, is it's simply the apostles um, giving credibility, giving their blessing upon a group of people who have come to accept Jesus. So just like last week, where, was, where, where were they? They were in Samaria, right? Samaria is a place with, they call them half-breeds. They're people that let themselves, you know, be defiled and not be distinct. So it was really hard for probably the rest of the church to accept the fact that there are now going to be Samaritan Christians. Well, so then Peter and John will come and, and they'll, they'll pray and they'll lay hands on these Christians and they'll give them the Spirit. They'll give them their blessing, their anointing, and that shows the church Okay, fine, they're the real deal. Uh, we see the same thing happen with, the, uh, with these seven, right? With, with Stephen and with Philip and these other guys who were called to wait on tables, right? What happens? They're, they, they pray for them, they, they lay their hands on them, they, they give them the, the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The idea is their blessing is going to these seven guys. And these seven guys are now gonna go and they're gonna preach the word. You see, there is this clear thing that happens in Acts, and we're coming up to it more and more, and it's this. So Jesus calls each and every one of us to the Great Commission, but the truth is a lot of us will not take that up. We will not take up that call. Is the Great Commission for all of us? Yes. Does Jesus call each and every one of us to go and make disciples and to evangelize? Yes. 
Do all of us take up that call? No. Now, for those who do, the Holy Spirit has an opportunity, has something to work with, basically. Is it, is it any coincidence that at a time when most people in the church will freely give away the Great Commission to the church itself and say, church, you can do it, I'm not going to do it, that at the same time, most Christians in America would say that they don't, they don't really have much of a relationship with God, they don't really experience the Holy Spirit, they don't really know anything about this guiding, equipping, clarifying stuff the Holy Spirit does to them. No, most people I've ever talked to in the church who are Christians struggle and ask, where is this Holy Spirit? Where is God? Why is he not talking to me? Why can't I hear him? Why am I not experiencing him more? But at the very same group of people have all too quickly uh, just accepted that, the, that this great commission call that we're all given, it must be for someone else or it must be for the church because the truth is, guys, like the, the hard truth is that like that, that nanny that, that, that can be around and say, you don't need to start parenting because I'm here. Let me know when you're ready. That nanny is the church for most Christians, at least in our country. The truth is that uh, you don't need the Holy Spirit when you've got a church that will uh, guide you all the time, that will, that will tell you exactly where to go and how to preach, right? Go, go on this trip or, or, or go to this place and, and evangelize in this way or share the gospel in that way or make it even easier and say, all you have to do is bring people to our church and we will tell them everything they need to know and that's all you have to do, right? Nobody needs the Holy Spirit to guide them when you have the church saying, just do these three things and then, uh, you know, you will have fulfilled the Great Commission. Nobody needs the Holy Spirit to equip them when you have a church that says, hey, listen, here's all these awesome, cool things that we're going to do. We just need you to have this one job. And what, what, what we've seen happen in the church is we've seen th this idea of spiritual gifts, right? Spiritual gifts being like, you know, uh, this is my job I have in the church. This is the thing that I'm good at. And when we have this great confusion around around spiritual gifts versus the idea of roles. And what I mean by that is, is that uh, because the church um, is wanting people to kind of do things and help and get involved and get connected, then uh, what, what churches will do is say, okay, these are your spiritual gifts. Uh, now, now do these jobs in the church. And if you, if you do these jobs in the church, you know, if you come and you um, help us with our signups, if you come and you help us with some registration or help lead some activities or, or help play some music or sing in the choir or be a part of a missions trip or, or, or be a youth leader or ser serve in Sunday school, if you do those things, good news. You're using your spiritual gift. You're fulfilling the Great Commission. You don't have to go out and talk to anybody about Jesus. And then you go home and you go, good, because I really didn't want to do that, right? So if the church is here to equip you by telling you all these ways you can get involved, who needs the Holy Spirit, right? You don't even need to go out and reach people. If the church is here to clarify things for you, right? I mean, as, as better and better and better and more dynamic and charismatic and interesting and thoughtful and polished speakers and teachers come out in the church every, every day, it seems, people we can podcast and we can watch on YouTube and we can just like read their books and we can learn from them so well that like who needs 
to ask God to give us clarity on anything in the Bible when we have like an abundance, an overabundance of resources that will just explain it to us. Who needs the clarity that comes from the Holy Spirit? The the truth is that the Holy Spirit, he is available to us to incredibly fill us and to empower us to do this incredible and pretty scary thing, which is to reach others with the gospel. The problem is that that for most, uh, they will not ever take that call up. And they'll spend their lives wondering, where is this spirit? Why isn't God more active in my life? Why isn't God more involved in my life? What you see happen with Philip here is that Philip is... Philip is responding to the call of God, and, and, and the, the Holy Spirit is leading him, leading him to someone to speak to, leading him with the right words, using him to bring clarity, and the Spirit is equipping him, is giving him everything that he needs. And sometimes the way the Holy Spirit equipped people was by just keeping them alive, just miraculously getting them out of situations. Sometimes the Holy Spirit equipped people with miracles, with the ability to perform miracles to do things. Last week, we talked about your best life now. I talked about how Simon the Magician was a total fool for thinking that he could use the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Spirit, to just have a better life. He, he had his own brand established. He was Simon the Magician. Come see Simon the Magician. And he was willing to pay for the Spirit because he believed that the Spirit could, could just make him better at what he was already doing, and then somehow God would be okay with that. And as crazy as that sounds, what you have with that and with this is you have, when I say two sides of the same coin, I say this, I mean this. I mean, the Holy Spirit is not given to us so that our lives can be better, so that we can be more fulfilled and happy. The Holy Spirit is given to us so that we can do the thing that God's called us to do, so that God can be present in our lives. If we never take up that call, if we never say, I'm willing to step out and begin even attempting to do this thing, even though I know I'm not ready at all and I'm terrified, if we never do that, then we are so greatly limiting God's ability to actually fill us with the Spirit. Do you know the number one reason why young people leave the church in droves, generation after generation, is not because the programs of the church weren't good enough. It's not because the Bible teachers weren't thorough enough. It's because they saw a difference, they, they see a difference between uh, words that are spoken and, and beliefs that are lived out. They see a difference between uh, hearing about this spirit, this God who's all-powerful, and actually seeing him at work in the lives of the people around them. Because as people grow up, they begin to look back and go, well, um, was my experience like that? Or was it not really quite like what I read about maybe in the Bible? And it seems disingenuous, it seems unauthentic, it seems not real, and for all too many, it seems like just a part of their childhood. Uh, The truth is that the biggest reason, and I've talked to so many young people, uh, the biggest reason why young people continue to leave the church is because they can tell that it's not real enough for us. That's the biggest reason. It's not any more complicated than that. 
It is, a, it is the case of, of, of children growing up in the home of people who say one thing but believe another thing and, and aren't really like that, in, that ready to actually like invest themselves enough in this thing to, to live differently for it. Now, I am not, I'm not saying that to say that if you have raised children in the church and they have gone away from the faith, they've fallen away from the faith, that that means that like you don't really genuinely believe in Jesus. Absolutely not. But the truth is that it is hard to deny when the Spirit is clearly at work. And I will say, if nothing else, just from my own personal experience, I have experienced God more vividly. I have seen him more tangibly. In the situations that I have been trying to simply reach other people with the gospel. I mean, it is undeniable that, that those are the prayers that I have seen answered the most. That, that those are the times that I've seen equipping come the fastest. That those are the times that clarity has happened, not just for me, but for other people. The truth is the Holy Spirit, he is real. And he is powerful. I don't think that it starts with a bunch of people who are really good at talking about Jesus and starting conversations with strangers and, and um, having the gift that we would call it of evangelism. I think what it looks like is a bunch of people who are probably freaked out and who feel like they probably don't know what to say and are even wondering who it is that they're supposed to reach, but people who are saying, God, I need you to give me some kind of guidance, show me where I'm going, who I'm going to. I need you to help equip me for this. I need you to give me the tools because I certainly am no expert in this stuff. And, and all the people I think of who are experts in evangelism, uh, they're, they're, that's not going to happen for me. And God, will you just give me the clarity? Because honestly, I don't, I don't feel like I know even enough about the Bible for myself, much less to bring it to other people. This is how it begins. It begins uh, not with uh, a resume filled with impressive qualifications that God then can use. It, it begins with, with admitting how, um, if anything, um, inadequate we are in all these areas. Because the Holy Spirit doesn't come to fill us up with the things that we already have. The Holy Spirit comes to empower us to do the things that we cannot do on our own because God calls us to do something as the church that we have no hope of doing on our own. And this is why being a part of God's church, being a part of the body is about stepping out in faith. Because the church is a group of people who step out in faith. And to step out in faith is to say, we can't do this without God. I can't be who you've called me to be without you, God. We can either do that or we can busy ourselves with trying to follow a bunch of rules and learn a bunch of things and, and, and hopes, in hopes of impressing God on our own. I know which of those appeals to me, but it's hard because it involves some humility and the willingness to accept that we, we can't do it and we need his spirit. 
I know that he will give you, will fill you with his Holy Spirit if only you ask him and if only you say, God, will you use me to reach others? Let's pray. God, studying history tells, tells us that, that the people who spread the gospel the most were not even those proclaiming it publicly. It was the slaves and the servants. It was the, it was the, the women and the children. It was the masters and the teachers. It was the people um, doing so in their own homes, in their own communities, with their own friends and the people around them, Lord. Christianity exploded like it did because everyday average people were willing to talk to others about the gospel and about you, Lord. God, the only way that that would work is for your Holy Spirit to empower them. God, would you help us to do that as a church? Would you give us the courage to do that? Would you give us the courage to let go of the idea that, that, that people will only come to faith um, by hearing the words of eloquent speakers or by their lives falling apart and them needing some kind of a, of a, of a coping mechanism, Lord? Would you give us the courage to trust that you are actually calling us And Lord, as we step out in faith and respond to that call one by one in this church, God, um, I pray that you would show up. I pray that you would show up and that you would show us what it looks like to live in faith, Lord. It's in your name that we pray, amen.